welcome to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, your guide to all places and plots exalted. My name is Aramithius. And I'm Rels. And before we get started on today's episode, I'm just going to put the call out again for be you listening to this on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever else you get your podcasts, do leave us some reviews. And if you have angry letters to send us about our interpretations of the law, to do so at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. That's wondrous without an E. Yes. Although, in fairness, if you do send it with an E, we also have that email address just in case. So however you want to spell Wondrous, it will get to us. And in line with that, we have our first review from Pendrake1, who is saying this is essential for Exalted. A great intro to Exalted. And if you want imagination to be fired for, for this setting, then listen to this podcast. Getting under the skin of creation and all of its myriad nuances is great. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you ever so much, Pendrake. That's absolutely fantastic to hear from you. I'm really glad you're enjoying the show. Today, we are starting our series on the Great Houses. We are starting this off alphabetically. So today is all about one of the biggest military houses in the realm, House Kathak. Indeedy. And despite being one of the largest houses, the struggle that was had with this episode is there's remarkably little about them. <laughs> yeah. Anywhere. They kind of... They're wallpaper. They're kind of the assumed background to a lot of stuff in a lot of ways. Um, if you think of your stereotypical dragon-blooded, they're probably going to be a Kathak, big, boisterous, in-your-face military and everything else. They are your archetypal dragon-blooded, both as something for dynasts to aspire to and for exalts of other types to have getting in their grills and causing the problems. And... They're even, arguably, the poster child Dragonblood, the standard image that comes to your head when Dragonbloods are described, the red samurai armour wielding dude. That's almost certainly a Kathak, especially given the colours. Yeah, absolutely. They're kind of designed to be, well, they're designed to be, they are the premier military house in the realm, and an awful lot of things come from that status. It covers everything from their income to their way they do politics to their standing within the realm civil war and we'll get to all of this as we go through the episode but all of that comes from kathak is its military above all else i don't want to draw a precise parallel with prussia but the way that prussia was described as an army with a state attached in the early portions of its history kathak is all about its legions and the rest of the house is Kind of a nice to have, but not the core of it at all. So yeah, I think we just have to start getting into the meat of them. They were elevated in realm year 283, which is not particularly late, not particularly early. They're kind of a middling house in terms of when they came onto the scene. Yeah, so they're kind of, they're, they're still forming. Their ethos is changing to an extent that you don't really see with some of the more ancient great houses and you can see that in the impact that the current matriarch is having on the house but we'll get to that but equally they're not as I'd, i almost want to say volatile as some of the younger houses like well veneef mostly 80 percent veneef is when i describe younger houses as volatile yeah because they can't be attacked that easily and they won't necessarily change the structures as much that institutional inertia has set in they are well respected by their peers, as compared to, again, Veneef, that is broadly, even the people that like Veneef tend to see them as upstarts, whereas Kathak is old enough that everyone is, yeah, 
they're proper. Yeah. Um, and everyone will probably have had something to do with them in the past because as well as having the best legions in the realm at this point, they were one of the few houses outside of Cessus and Tepet, who are your other two traditional military houses. Kathak also had house legions before the imperial legions were divided up among the houses. The other houses kind of have imperial legions attached to them because everything was split from the Council of the Empty Throne. And that's not necessarily an accident, but not something that they're really built to incorporate. Whereas Kathak was producing legions of probably comparable standards to the Imperial Legions, or at least the closest that House Legions ever got to Imperial Legion standard before they actually inherited any legions from the splitting up of the legions and they actually benefited the most from that they are the biggest military house out there pretty much they already had four house legions and they got four from the dividing up of the imperial legions and so they have eight full legions they are a military force to be reckoned with so everyone kind of tiptoes around them to a degree um for partly because of their military strength and partly because of some very savvy politicking from Kathak Kane and their house matriarch. Yes. He did some wonderful things. The thing that we should note, though, while they do have eight legions, on any given day, they might not have access to all of them because the biggest way that Kathak makes its money is by lending out its legions to people for a price. Yes. Usually, one would imagine, to houses... Not to cast aspersions upon Great House Sinus, but <laughs> to houses like Sinus that don't pay attention to their military. And the ones that don't really have the know-how or a lot of legions to do things. Yeah. If you want to kind of stir the pot, I could almost see Kathak legions being brought in to quell Giara, for example, because House yeah. Naman is doing all sorts of things and has its fingers in many pies and probably not enough legions to go around. So yes, Kathak legions will be sent everywhere um, so long as you can pay the price for it. Yeah. Those of you who are less lore aware and more linguistically aware may have caught a second ago that we did refer to the house matriarch as he. Welcome to third edition being strange and we get to talk about Kathak Kanan, the current house matriarch male. <laughs> yes. One of the side effects of the Scarlet Empress being the cultural force that she is in the realm means that she has brought about various types of female first stuff and misandrist stuff and so on and so forth and part of that is that female titles are the default which is just a lovely little twist so if you run a house you're a matriarch of course you are that's just what heads of houses are called and when we talk about the realm civil war everyone even the men are vying to be the empress this wasn't always the case second edition at least did still keep the gender distinction third has decided that it just defaults onto the female but it does mean that with catholic canaan and we'll talk more about him personally in a second but it is arguable that one of the most unique and intriguing things about him is that in the way the realm is organised, as a dude, he managed to get to that kind of position of power. Because other than direct children of the Empress, at which point you get actually quite a bit more men in power, but by now, where it's mostly the heirs, most of the house leaders, most of the matriarchs are women. Kanan is not the only one, but one of the few, and... Uh, 
okay, it comes to an argument on how important you think House Ragnarok <laughs> is as to whether he's the most influential. That's where I was going to go. Because <laughs> Old Man Ragnarok is still about pulling all of the strings, and he put his firstborn son, Ragnarok Bonobus, not a monkey, despite the name, onto the throne of Ragnarok. But those two are the only real male matriarchs of a whole great house. Again, yep. some of the little sub-houses and patrician things probably will have dudes on it, but not to diminish them, but they're not commanding eight legions about the pace. No. <laughs> I like Kafat Kanan as a character. He has an awful lot of depth. But before we get to him and get ahead of, the, get ahead of our schedule, we should probably delve into the, the general character of the house. We've kind of talked over what the main strengths and the main focuses of the house is. So... How is how is House Kathak run? It's run just very, 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 very strategically. Everyone is brought up to be a soldier of some sort, and most of the scions of the house will have a tour of duty somewhere so that they can have some awareness of the military, and strategy and planning pervades everything. To the extent that the supposed origin of Gateway, Exalted's chess, was supposedly designed by someone from in-house Kathak. So that's how important strategy is to their culture. You've got everyone being drilled on the thousand correct actions for the upright soldier and those sorts of things. And even for those that are destined for things that are less upfront and less of a battlefield, they have a manual to talk through with it. It's seen as a companion volume to the thousand correct actions of the upright soldier. It's called the Silken Blade Codex. And the title will tell you quite what they're thinking of there. It's the idea of, to reverse Clausewitz's thing, that politics is a continuation of war by other means. So they think of everything in those sorts of terms and challenges are key to everything. So... Everything needs a winner and a loser. They hold regular competitions and sports-based activities in their satrapies. They're probably going to be your ones holding something like an Olympics or something like that, even just among the common folk that they're trying to inculcate with Kathak values. Um, so that's kind of how important and how martial the whole place is. And everyone will have a yeah. role to serve somewhere in the military. In the case of their big strategic planning of the house it's quite interesting because you'd expect for such a martial house and for such of their focus on everything has a winner everything has a loser you would expect then that they would be well they've got the biggest army and they're thinking very martially and yet one of the other peculiar little things about Kathak, which there are many <laughs> is they don't have, or at least haven't declared, any aspirations for the throne. No, but that comes down to Kathak himself more than anything else because of who he is. We've talked about Kathak Kanan enough that we should probably talk about him a bit more in general. But just to preface this, he has two things against him in being a contender for the throne. He is a man and he is old. He is over 300 years old, which is getting on a bit for a dragon-blooded. Mm. Not the oldest. No. And weirdly, there's one older than him that's trying to claim the throne. That's true. Nemon is all kinds of weird yeah. on herself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nemon is still very much in her prime, despite being several centuries older than Kathak. So, there yeah. is that. Tinfoil hat, Nemon figured out whatever trick her mother was using to keep to keep herself going that long. 
Yeah, although, yeah, there are various sorcery things you can do to extend your life. There is always a catch if we're to believe mm. the unbreakable rules of exalted magic. Um, you can't have resurrection and immortality must always have a cost. So Nimon is paying a cost somewhere. Exactly what that cost is, we don't know. Yeah. But anyway, Kathak Kanan has those things pointed against him. He is old and he is male. So he is already at a disadvantage for trying to claim the throne for the house. The idea of him being old is one of the main drivers. He does not want the realm to be unstable. He's very, very principled in how he's going about it. It, it would bring glory to the house. It would be wonderful for House Kathak if they were the imperial house. But Kanan is saying, no, I want a stable realm and I'm too old to guarantee that because, yes, there will be a civil war, there will be fighting, but once the, all the dust has settled, I won't reign for very long, which may well trigger another succession crisis and destroy everything, which yeah. is very principled of him. This also may be, though, just to throw a little bit of theory into the work here, because it's a role-playing game. We get bits about him, but we never get full long-form narrative enough to get every inch of his character. True. I will put forward the idea that this may also be a bit of a chip that he has on his shoulder from a certain interaction he had with his own father. Ah, <laughs> huh. you're going to have to explain that one. When Kathak Kanan ascended to, or was declared the heir to House Kathak, he was brought before Kathak himself, child of the Empress, who was a bit of a Henry VIII figure. Not in the whole loads of wives and killing them all, more in the constantly trying to have a daughter and not succeeding. <laughs> oh. Um... And he got brought up before the throne, before the entire, it feels wrong to say court when he wasn't the empress, but the house the house matriarchs did kind of still keep courts. Mm. Mm. Brought up the whole, the whole thing, and Kathak himself listed before the whole thing every single flaw with Kanan's character before declaring him the heir. <laughs> okay. Which is very drill sergeanty, very militanty. <clears throat> But I would argue there may be still a bit of a chip on the shoulder about if he's worth it personally. Yeah. Because you can say, oh, it's about principle and about wanting the realm to be stable, which, yeah, that's there. I would argue that that sort of lecture and rant before basically being begrudgingly given the power because there wasn't a daughter to hand it to would leave a bit of a chip on the shoulder. Yeah. Well, it depends on how you want to spin it, because narratively that could also work the I'm going to prove them wrong angle. And then he could do his level best. But we know Kanan doesn't have the aspirations, yeah. so I'm arguing I'm going to go with that line, yeah. because I think it makes him a bit more of a spicy character. Yeah, that sort of nagging self-doubt sort of thing, that could absolutely work. I should also point out that I think that's one of the points of differences in additions. In third, it's definitely the case she is slowly dying of poison, and he goes to her deathbed, and then she lists his flaws uh, before naming that him the That still arguably heir. means a bigger chip on the shoulder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just not quite as public. Yeah, your mum says you're absolutely worthless and croaks. That's, <laughs> oh, that will yeah. arguably leave a bigger one. Yeah, he's actually got quite a few bits to things that he's trying to kind of work out personally. A lot of things about him do say inferiority complex because he exalted in a fight with his brother and scarred his elder brother for life as part of that exaltation. So already there's kind of, oh no, I've hurt my brother, who I presumably mm. have quite a bit of feelings for. I mean, presumably. We, we don't know that for sure. Dynasts are more likely than others to not like their siblings. But I, so I see nothing in Kathak's character to say that he wouldn't like his brother. He also married a Kathak. 
so he's both born a Cathac and he's married into a Cathac. And intra-house marriages are less prestigious than marrying out of house. Although I don't think that Canaan, because he's a male, would be in a position to be the head of the house if he'd married outside of it. Yeah. It's the usual case that the husband is given away to the other house. I'd argue it explains the role that Cathac, that House Cathac is sitting in under him, because it's insanely powerful. And we have sort of mentioned it many times, but any other leader would press that advantage. Canaan mm. really doesn't. He's quite happy to sit them there as kingmaker. Everyone is trying to be nice to House Cathac because they have no aspiration to the throne, and everyone knows they've got no aspiration to the throne. They've also got eight legions, so that whoever Kathak says we support is likely to be the one that gets it. Yes, and so there's multiple reasons for playing nice with House Kathak for everyone else, which is a pretty savvy ploy, and it was very, very deliberately done. Another savvy political move they've got, though, is with who their friends are, because all of the houses have different relations with all of the other houses. House Kathak is an odd little duck in this regard. They used to support House Tepet and then House Tepet fell from grace. And now they're not opposed to them, but House Tepet is so irrelevant that they're not really doing much with them anymore. But the odd one is they're propping up Venif, which is an excellent move if your goal here is not actually to have a civil war happen, but to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Because Venif is... We'll get to them right at the end, I think, because alphabetically they are the last house. But in brief, Venif is a thorn in everyone's side. <laughs> mm. There's part of me that's wondering whether that is purely to spite Namon, that whether that's a personal thing from Kanan's perspective. And Peleps. True, but it's, it's less personal there. And Kathak has said that he will support anyone if the likely claimant presents itself. Uh, whereas Namon is sitting there the image of her mother, very competent, very, very able to run things, yeah. very ambitious and able to wield that much power. And Kathak does not back her. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing you're saying the personal. The reason that I'm saying personal is because Namon absolutely hates Venif. There's a personal grudge there. So, again, I think that it might be part of that. Yeah, I was calling the political because if we assume the House Kathak goal is keep the current situation where it's kind of run by default by the houses and there's no big war and the throne's empty, but we're chugging along. House Nemon, you have to keep them off of it because they're an obvious claimant. That personal slight does that. It makes everyone think, oh, the one with the big armies doesn't support her. Okay. Backing up Venif annoys Nemon personally, but that also keeps Peleps from getting too greedy and trying anything. And House Peleps are one of the other big claimants that could seat the throne. That's true. Yeah. I can see that. Because Venif are, like I said, a thorn in everyone's side, but politically they're the biggest thorn in Pelepsis. Yes, absolutely, because they're the only other big naval power out there. But yeah, uh, but Kathak themselves don't really have any enemies either. So they are really not, they, they've, they don't really have any great friends as much as everyone's trying to be friends with them now, but they don't have enemies either. It kind yeah. of feels like they'd have a historical rivalry with House Tepet and because they're another big, proud, traditional military house. So you would expect that as kind of a Derby-type rivalry, that the instant anyone is fielding both Kathak and Tepet legions, they're going to be trying to outdo each other. But yeah. 
I can't see anything else being a particular issue there. Also, potentially, depending basically on how your storyteller chooses to treat House Tappets Fall from Grace, you could argue that there now might be a bit of... Because again, beforehand they'd be the rivalry, but I, I would like to imagine beforehand, given how martial they both are and how... Well, basically how upright and decent both of their heads tend to be, not just the current ones, but going back, that they would have ultimately been quite friendly with each other. And so Kathak not coming to help Tepet when it was falling apart could be a bit of a the betrayal that hurt the most sort of thing. Yeah, I, I can see that. It depends on how vindictive you make House Tepet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And exactly how you play that implosion, which we'll get to when we talk about House Tepet. There are lots of different ways you can play that. And I like to tweak it differently to how the default yeah. setting does it. The tragedy of House Tepet. <laughs> They are deliberately keeping themselves basically neutral. And it is almost weirdly the case of, again, everyone kind of... They don't overlook House Kathak, because House Kathak is that massive army you want on side. But everyone sort of assumes that the other ones engaging in the active claim to the throne are the big master politicians. But when you actually do take the wide look at what House Kathak has done, it really does shed that Kavak Kanan must have an insane amount of political acumen to have been able to pull this off. Yes. And as to kind of wrap up the last point on Kathak Kanan, before we kind of dig any more into the enemies, Kathak Kanan has also got more and more immaculate, more and more religious as he's got older. And that's having an effect as well. So you're seeing more and more support from the Immaculate Order being a thing. Again, you can, you can argue it's a political ploy. And it would make him a very savvy political actor as well, particularly if you're trying to cut off House Namon and go up against them. And that sort of a conflict would be quite interesting, I imagine. I'd be more willing to say, actually, given the way that we have been characterising Kanan personally as a person, I would almost say that this, this is probably one of the more real and sincere moves he's had. Just because if you've got that chip on your shoulder and you're getting older and, well, clearly if he was thinking, if I claim the throne, I won't be on it for very long, he must be thinking he's not got too long left in him. No. Now is the case where you start pursuing that, yeah. where he starts going to the Immaculate thing. As we'll talk about later, this does seem to be more personal and he's not using the house as a club for the order as much as he could be. No. And so that's what's making me think this is a genuine personal, if you're playing your big... In, and this will be discussed a way later episode, but if you're playing your big Realm Civil War game, this is the thing that's highlighted in red as the big weakness of Kathak Kanan to poke him with, is that he's starting to get a bit old, he's starting to get a bit frail. He's relying on his faith to basically keep him going. Yeah, and that's actually something that kind of plays out in the, in the satrapies as well, because as much as House Kathak doesn't have that many enemies within the great houses in the dynasty it does have quite a lot of reason to have enemies within its own satrapies because they have a large military you need to be able to pay that military and so house kathak lays one of the heaviest tax burdens of any great house in the realm on its satrapies purely to keep its armies going and so you don't really tend to have friends in the places you're extracting money from in any way shape or form uh, the peasants on the Blessed Isle will tolerate it better than most because Kathak has had enough time to spread the propaganda to say that House Kathak being strong is important for the realm's safety so you can tie in the safety of the Blessed Isle and everything with House Kathak's strength. And they, by and large, buy that line. And also, the peasants on the Isle are consistently always described as just having 
more rights and being better treated than yeah. people out in the satrapies. And so if taxes are heavy, but you're still living comfortably, eh, it's an inconvenience more than a crime. Yeah, the satrapial subjects have more reason to rebel. And I've noticed that for the satrapies that we know that House Kathak holds, there generally tends to be a play to religious heterodoxy in some of them. And so you've also got that theme of, well, as House Kathak becomes more and more immaculate because of how Canaan's attitude is, then you've got the satrapies who previously were negotiated with and were able to have a tense truce or compromises that allowed the places to run, those are probably going to break down quite soon because there's going to be enough pro-immaculate push from the Kathak institutions that the power brokers and the satrapies are going to have enough. And also, even with their massive tax burdens and their extraction of wealth from their satrapies, and we will get into their satrapies in a second because they're fun, yes. they are as... Every house bar one is, well, bar two, deeply in debt to House Ragara because House Ragara has everyone in their pocket. Yeah, and so you can argue that House Ragara does not like them because they are dirty, dirty debtors, or at least... Well, well, well I, I don't know necessarily that it's actually... I don't know that it's that House Ragara doesn't like them. It's that House Kathak will be more predisposed to do something bad to Ragara in order to get off paying their debt if House Ragara falls. That's the way I kind of read that. I don't know. I see it as almost the opposite. I believe wholeheartedly that House Kathak has an incentive to topple House Ragara. Most people do. <laughs> but I would argue that House Ragara actually likes this situation where Kathak owes them so much money, given that yes. when you look at House Ragara, and we'll get to them later, there's only one house they actually really, really hate and are actually slightly afraid of, and it's the one house that doesn't owe them money. They like having the debt as something to tug on the leash with. Yes, absolutely. And I can wholeheartedly believe, in the case of a Realm Civil War, everyone else will try and appeal to House Kathak's moral character to get them to support them, whereas House Ragger will be like, we can write this off. <laughs> yeah, you can pretty much know where House Kathak is coming from a lot of the time, which I think is why a lot of the other houses will like them. They are a predictable player. It's a case that you will always see them coming, but they will possibly have made it that you can do nothing about that. It's the kind of everything in place from their military to their politics to everything else will be carefully, meticulously planned. Yes, they're predictable. And that doesn't mm. mean they're easy to beat. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Now that we've talked about those enemies and so on, it's probably about time we set out some thoughts on the Civil War in detail. We've already said that House Kathak does not have a position of its own. Canaan is willing to back a legitimate contender, but that kind of strikes me almost as the same way that Lukshai is waiting for a shogun to give them new orders or something. It doesn't strike me as something that's going to resolve itself anytime soon, because if Namon is not a legitimate contender. I'm not really sure who is for the position of Empress, quite frankly. I think part of that might be some reservations about who Namon is going to wreak vengeance upon, because she holds a grudge quite well. So there could be a fear that she is a legitimate contender, but I can see Kathak being quite worried that she's not good for the stability 
because she will take everything personally and kill everyone who disagrees with her. Yes. It is the case with Kathak as a house that basically, again, we were talking before about how they were a genius political acumen. In the case of the Realm Civil War, just to law hypothesize, I'd put money on, of all of the usual claimants, House Kathak would stand behind Peleps ultimately. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that. Of all the ones going for it, like you said, Nemon's a bit too much of an individual force of personality and a bit too flagrant. The one thing that, as long as Kanan is still on top, which isn't a guarantee in a Realm Civil War scenario, but if we assume that Kathak Kanan is still running the show, the thing they're after is stability. The thing they want is they do seem to be treating a civil war as inevitable and are prepping for it, but they want it to be quick and done. And backing House Peleps, a Kathak Peleps alliance, at that point, they don't actually need any of the other houses to put Peleps on the throne. That's true. Those two together can do it like that. Yeah, it's a question of how much Peleps wants it, I suppose, as opposed to playing around in the West with all its own toys. Yeah, the usual claimants, by the way, for those of us unaware, it's usually considered that it's a game of Nemon, Peleps, and or Venif. And Venif, I'll admit, I'll admit it's entirely second edition Adventure Pass that keeps saying Venif wants to take a swing. <laughs> but I like those second edition adventures, so I always do put Venif on it. Mm-hmm. Cessus, we'll get to Cessus in their own, but I don't think Kathak would ever support them. No. <laughs> Cessus are too weird and too dodgy. It'll be. Yes. In the usual standard operation, I reckon they'd back Peleps. In the case of your game, if you're not backing House Peleps, assassinating Kathak Kanan is usually going to be your first order of business. Because that's the quickest way to make sure that House Kathak does anything differently. Because as we'll get into when we start talking about individual Kathaks, he's a bit of an odd duck even amongst the house in how... Well, basically how chill he is. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Kathaks have a lot more ambition. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I th- also think we have to talk about their absolute masterstroke in getting themselves more revenue I- with regards to the Civil War. Because right after everything started prepping for the inevitable abdication and declaration of Civil War, Kathak Kanan threw a gala and he made a fairly public pronouncement of House Kathak's position that they would support the first claimant that looked likely to win. After this gala, they started getting gifts from an awful lot of places. So they had a serious uptick in any bribes and gifts and everything else that they were getting, which is supplementing their income. They have not been increasing their tax burden as much as the other houses. It was already the heaviest in the realm, pretty much. But that flow of gifts has meant that they're not as problematic in regard to their debt to Regara, and they can hold off on raising their satrapial taxes to breaking point because they've got more money. They are kind of bracing for that day because, as we said earlier, they've got the most legions of everyone, but an awful lot of them are tied up in securing their most valuable satrapies, so they can't really go anywhere. And this includes their prefecture on the Blessed Isle. There is a legion there to secure Mion Prefecture in the event of something going wrong, which we'll get to when we talk about Mion Prefecture. And they're in the process of kind of bargaining off their 
less valuable satrapies as well, making sure that those ones that could very well become a financial liability and couldn't support them as well are disposed of before they're a problem and disposed of for a profit. So they are paring down everything that they're responsible for and securing their financial position an awful lot um, in recent years. So they're building up a war chest, basically. Yeah, it's why we say they're one of the houses that are treating a war as inevitable, because not all of the houses are. There are some that seem to think it can be avoided, but House Kathak is not amongst them. The other thing as well, for those of you who like insane second edition things, in The Return of the Scarlet Empress, they initially sided with the Empress and then turned to backing the Rose Black. Ah! This will be explained in greater detail in our inevitable Return of the Scarlet Empress tinfoil hat episode. Yeah, <laughs> I can totally see that as a scenario working out. That's oh, that, 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 that's that's too good. That, that that has to be a fanfic that's written <laughs> somewhere. Better, better than that, they had full comics in the adventure path. You can go for it. Oh, oh, beautiful. But yeah, House House Kathak are, as we sort of said, in terms of the Civil War, they aren't a claimant unless you put someone weird in charge of the house. And if they were a claimant, they'd arguably stand a better chance of winning than anyone else. Otherwise, they won't back Nemon as long as Nemon is insane. Just to slander Nemon a bit there. But yeah, they won't back Nemon as long as Nemon is around. And I personally reckon Peleps would be their friend in a normal Civil War scenario. Maybe Vanif. If Vanif's plans for making everyone love them worked, I can see them backing Vanif. But unless Vanif had everyone other than Peleps on side, they'd go for Peleps over Vanif because they want stability. Their goal in this isn't glory, it's making sure the realm keeps going. Yes. Now onto their house constituents, the people within it. Yeah, we've already talked about Kathak Kanan, but they've got a whole bunch of other characters out there to give them a bit more depth. I think it shows how magnificently varied the whole house is. They're not just the military house because of how all of these characters work and express all of the things that we've been talking about in regards to the character of House Kathak. That's pretty much the whole point of these characters as they're laid out. They're, they are there to express both express the faction that they're assigned to and to show that not all of Faction X is like this. So you get some interesting contradictions with that. But yes, we should probably keep it in the family to start with. Yeah, the Kathak Garel, the younger sister of Kanan himself and commander-in-chief, basically, of all of House Kathak's legions. And despite this, she's more of a logistician than she is a direct general. And you can make a lot of arguments that the we were talking earlier about how they were prepping their war chest, that a lot of these ideas came from her rather than Kanan himself, which, given how Kanan behaves, I wholly subscribe to the fact that a lot of their recent moves come from Garel, not from him. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I imagine that Kuruk would have had something to do with it as well, but yeah. we will get to him. At least if they had any kind of central input. That is one thing about House Kathak that is not defined very well, is their overall house governance. Um, mm. I mean, you get the impression that Canaan is describing things by fiat, but several other houses will have councils or something, some kind of ruling body. Uh, we yeah. don't get told what that is in the case of House Kathak. I imagine personally that it's a bunch of generals in a room planning everything with Canaan having the final vote. But I don't have anything substantive to back that up that I can find. This is, again, a problem of House Kathak 
is treated as so ubiquitous that we don't actually have that much data on them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the, actually, that was an interesting aspect of Gorel, given the things that you said about the likelihoods of Kathak and Peleps in a civil war, is that Kathak Gravel is married to Peleps Kozurin. So she is in a position, if Kanan is out of the way, to have an alliance of sorts already there simply because of who she's married to. It's probably not a good idea for her to be running the house. She is Kanan's heir, technically speaking. That's been publicly announced. But she's approaching old age herself. She's not that much younger than he is. I don't think they've given an absolute age. But it's a case of, so you get rid of someone who's, um, who is approaching their dotage for someone who will be in their dotage a relatively short time later. So she's yeah. possibly not the best the- choice for long term. Unless you can pull a Ragara, use her marriage to secure the alliance with Peleps and then hand it off. I like how we're just describing Puller Ragara. Um, but yeah, the. Yeah, well, yeah, because Ragara himself is too old, and you get the kind of handing off of the day to day running to someone who's more competent. Yeah, the thing with her again, in, in the case of you running a Realm Civil War game, which is one of the few cases where all of the top dogs of the houses become relevant at once, um, which is why we're talking about it so much in these episodes. If you're taking Kanan out of the picture to put her on the throne, it's because you want Peleps to win. That's by and large the way this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, one of the other things about her as well, which possibly would make her a liability in terms of someone who's actually running the show, is that she's supposedly unable to tell any kind of lie. So there is no buttering someone up to their face and then fixing something behind the scenes later to make sure that a dangerous threat is pacified and then dealt with there is no political skullduggery with kathak garal so not savvy enough to really pull it off if she was to wind up in the chair though there is always the argument that you can make especially with older dragon bloods of any variety that this was a deliberate image she has cultivated (laughs) yes that's true because again it's the case of my standard example for this is everyone thinks these sorts of things about nemon (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's yeah, because that's Nemon enough. wants everyone to think that <laughs> yeah so next next on the list we hit Kathak Najara Rin and I have to prepare my tinfoil hat for this because she was she is in fact still in theory the co-commander of Faxi's legions on the call yes but they have a shared commandership on Faxi so you have another house also with um, forces to command there the actual garrison leader is Ladal Deja, who is just basically jumping up and down and is disgusted with everyone who has deserted the call and pulled their forces out to go and deal with the civil war. Ladal is one of the houses that hasn't done that, whereas Kathak has pulled its forces out. So Najara Rin is basically sitting there giving advice, but doesn't have much in the way of actual troops to back anything up. So basically ceding command of the forces on the core, which is basically just Faxi, to Ladal at this point. Um, yes. The And by the way, for those of you keeping track, this is more evidence for getting your tinfoil hats about the call, because when House Ladal says something's important, that's because it's weird. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. But it also makes me think that Najara Rin is an example of 
Warehouse Kathak is putting its pragmatism above everything else because the call is not something that is of real strategic importance to House Kathak's holdings and its holding together as a house, but it is important from a potential piety point of view. It's important to the spirituality of the Dragon-Blooded. And as much as Kanan is an immaculate devotee and that is slowly filtering down, it's not something that's really a strategic goal as such. As far as House Kathak knows. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's fair enough. We, we, we have our cool spiracy theories. <laughs> yes, absolutely, we do. That's going to be a long episode, <laughs> but we'll get, to, we'll get to that. The point um, is constant teasing and setup. <laughs> absolutely. Next up, we have Kathak Teneri Fanar, who is a magistrate who was made a magistrate after having killed a Tepet matriarch's son in a duel and was then pardoned by the Empress. Typically speaking with the magistrates, they will always be personally tied to the Empress in some way in order to make sure that they are not going to be incorruptible in any way, shape or form or turn against the Empress because they're given um, near enough absolute power wherever they walk. But Kathak Teneri Fanar wasn't a slouch on the dueling field at all. They were better at dueling than they were in actual military campaigning. But the kind of thing with that, they actually regret what they did. And so since House Tepet has fallen from grace, she's been trying to dig out evidence that the Tepet was set up. So it's, it's kind of saying, well, what can she do as a magistrate to bring Tepet back and make some sort of apology and penance for yeah. having killed one of their own in yeah. what was presumably a quite horrific accident. Yeah. This is your evidence and example in character form, by the way, of House Kathak being the good guys. <laughs> yeah, they are concerned about kind of fairness and doing right by people yeah. to a fault. Controversial statement here to make a bunch of people angry and get us angry letters sent. You won't find a more pure case of bad guys setting up good guys to fail than what happened to House Tepet. Yeah, I can agree with that one. And in carrying on the good people doing good things in positions of power, we have Kathak Kuruk as the last one, who is head of the Honest Assessors. So he is part of the tax office and is good at his job and thoroughly incorruptible, apparently. I am also convinced that he's in cahoots with Garel to try and work out what the best scenarios are for assigning Kathak's resources because he's in a position to know far more than anyone else's. That's totally my speculation. But if anyone is manipulating where the money flows are to the benefits of House Kathak, it will be Kathak Kuruk. And unsurprisingly, for the modern realm and a taxman who cannot be bribed or bought off, people keep trying to kill him. <laughs> Yeah, but he's good at fighting because he's a Kathak, so, yeah. so he has survived all of these attempts so far. <laughs> it's... I'm sorry, I am now seeing. We've discussed this in the intro episode to this series about the idea of the nice little bureaucracy game. This is the case of how you do a bureaucracy game that still has action in it. Kung Fu Taxman. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just kind of imagining this great beefcake sitting at a desk, frankly. 
we've got we've got no description of him, but nah, nah. I'm seeing the flip side. I'm seeing <laughs> complete absolute stereotype of your bureaucrat in the tax office. Little guy, he's got those glasses as well, sitting down, ink on his fingertips, and someone just walks into the room, does the menacing little. It's time for someone new to assume the office. Pulls out a knife thing, and then instantly thump thump, and we just smash cut to that guy getting thrown out of the second story window. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can see that. And then he brushes his sleeves off and gets back to twiddling <laughs> with with the abacus. <laughs> yeah, either of those is thoroughly plausible. <laughs> yeah, but yes, that's Kathak Kuruk, and that is all of the notable Kathaks that we have. And you'll note with those, uh, quite a few of them are more roles than they are anything really in terms of character, because House Kathak is about doing things properly and executing a job well and everything that entails. So that's House Kathak in a nutshell. And now we actually crack open the Atlas part of the Wondrous Atlas and we get to talking about Kathak's holdings. Yes. And before we do this, and as a bit of advanced warning, we'll put this disclaimer here and not have to repeat it for every single house. (laughs) You say that. Yeah, okay, look. We tried to avoid getting stuck in the nitty-gritty of arguing, Edition Wars. This is going to be the first case where we just outright will not be able to afford to go into the Edition Wars with the holdings of the various houses, because across the editions, not only do the holdings of the various houses consistently change, but also whether or not you even get certain holdings as something that the houses have changes. Third edition lets them hold prefectures on the Isle. This was not the case in older ones. It used to be that the Isle was neutral ground, for use of a better term. Yeah, in my kind of thinking about how the game developers have done it, I think Third has tried to make a compromise with that to explain why you've got some people from one house in an area and some actually holding it, because they say that the garrison commanders are not necessarily the same house as the satraps. And Mm. so you've got that political angle to go with, to start with, but you've also got a reason for a very high ranking member of another house to be present in a satrapy. So I think that's why they did it, that if you're going off some older reference material that's saying House Nellens was in this particular place and then all of a sudden they're not in third, then you've got a way to still use those references to House Nellens from the older stuff without compromising what you know of in third edition. Yeah. Though, as we've as we've discussed before, even in the few episodes we've done, trying to make things not conflict between editions is a, a bit of a Sisyphean task. <laughs> ah, it's good fun, though. That's what we do, the details. Anyway, details. anyway, <laughs> they're Prefecture on the Realm, which is, so far as we know, they're only one, but I'm pretty certain there will be more. This is the only named one that we have actually in the place is Myon Prefecture, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right now I say that. It's M-Y-I-O-N. I have no idea. This is a case of Realm making up the way that sounds work, like how we have Venif, which is not something they've taken from a language. Myon here as well is just a strange little duck designed to be upsetting to try and pronounce. Yeah. However it's pronounced, it's on the southwest coast of the Blessed Isle. It's in the Daoshin Peninsula, and it is warm, wet, and rainy. 
because it is in the southwest. So it's vaguely veering on the tropical side in line with the idea of the Blessed Isle getting kind of microcosms of climates everywhere else. You're getting the wet and the hot in Daoshin. And Mion gets the bulk of that try and deal with. And in, and because of that, because it's warm, wet and rainy, it is an agricultural prefecture. Um, it is a place where you will go to get lots and lots and lots of crops. And like everywhere, agricultural. People don't like thinking of agricultural places as important, so it gets seen as a bit of a backwater. It does act as a breadbasket for much of the isle and also nearby Kathak satrapies. We don't have any evidence for named Kathak satrapies that we can find nearby. So I would then, if you're going to go into the agricultural side of Mion Prefecture, I would be pretty certain that they hold some satrapies just north of Anteng, just across the Great Western Ocean, along that side of the southwest of the map. That's more or less where I would put any of those satrapies, so it makes the logistics of providing the food that little bit easier. But that's just me. Yeah. In addition to that bit, though, Mion has a problem. We mentioned way back in the first episode of this podcast to come out that the Unconquered Son isn't really worshipped all that much because he's a bit of an absent father. Not so in Mion. Back in the first age, they used to worship him there, but back in the first age, worshipping him was more acceptable because he had all of his kids wandering around doing miracles everywhere. Yes. Mion kind of never stopped. Uh, they've just renamed it that they are springing up using all of the old Unconquered Sun monuments for Heshiesh worship. The Immaculate Monks, of course, try to knock these monuments down whenever they see them, and there is the... I don't believe it's directly said that they're still just worshipping the Unconquered Sun, because they do sort of say, oh, it's a syncretic thing with Heshiesh, but anyone with two eyes and half a brain will think this is just a secret cult to the Unconquered Sun. Although I think they are going for a Sol Invictus kind of vibe, more than anything else here. Yeah, I would actually lean into the syncretism a bit more because you have the idea of Heshiesh the Unconquered and that sort of thing as a moniker. Mm. And even that, if you're going to start going into direct worship of Heshiesh Unconquered, then you're going to fall afoul of the order anyway. Yeah. And also, I kind of, I almost want to tie in, if you're going to start thinking about it potentially as a way to kind of lead into support of Solas. You think back to um, the Forest Witches that we talked about in the Dragonblooded episode, and we will talk about again. One of their founders was thinking that he was Mela reincarnated and expressed in a Dragonblooded body. So those sorts of things are absolutely possible. Yeah. So if you want something like a Solar character rising up on the Blessed Isle and actually not being immediately killed, having him run around in... Mion Prefecture claiming to be Heshiash Unconquered would be a good way to have a ready power base. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I think the two of us are approaching this from different angles, where you're saying this is an opportunity for a solar to do some shenanigans. I'm approaching this, looking at this and thinking, there's a solar doing some shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm tacitly <laughs> assuming that this whole problem is a solar issue. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing that isn't ever said. It's not said, but the storyteller in my brain just twigged Solar Bad Guy to a House Kathak game. Yeah, 
that can absolutely happen. And there's always a case of kind of unearthing the old stuff as well. The impression that I got when reading through the materials was that a lot of the Unconquered Sun stuff that's there is kind of in a cave somewhere that some shepherd will stumble on when a lamb goes missing. Or given that it's a swampy place, that the bogs will, as the tides shift and the land flows change, that the bogs will eventually just belch up a statue or something and it will just be uncovered that way. It's like how people keep finding Roman stuff and classical stuff on everywhere that has a coast on the med. And you just sort of, you can be Italian Jim wandering around, have a look in a cave and, oh, hey, look, here's a whole little temple to Mithradates that was hidden here back when that was a cult. And it's that sort of vibe. I am assuming there's a solar behind it because (laughs) you tell me one thing more solar than being like, oh, hey, look, guys, here's some unconquered sun worship stuff. Would be a shame if you started worshipping the sun. (laughs) Starts glowing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely something that can be done. It's very solar (laughs) behaviour. And as much as Mion Prefecture is a backwater, there is some development there amidst all of the First Age ruins. There is the city of Mion, which is not at all confusing. Because Mion is in Mayon. Just to spell that out, Mion the city is M-Y-O-N. The prefecture is M-Y-I-O-N. But Mion was supposedly founded by two sisters, by Yola and Kava, and that's also the name of the two hills that the city is built around. They've also got various features on each of the hills. Yola has an ash tree that was supposedly planted by Sextus Gilus and has been constantly in bloom for a thousand years, as far as the records go, if you trust the records. Kaaba has a shogunate-era manse on top of it, which is where Kathak is entombed, and that's presumably where any of the house notables will go if they're of anything like importance to the house. This was, as with basically everything in Mion Prefecture, a first-age sissy, used to be dedicated to the Unconquered Sun and got rededicated to the Immaculate Dragons. There is argument here again that you can do a bit of a Paris Catacombs thing of finding weird Unconquered Sun stuff under the city and just the older built bits because First Age cities are not constrained by what one would consider normal Bronze Age architecture. (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. There's a fine example of that in the place which I fundamentally do not understand how it works. It is by the sea in the prefecture. It is right by the coast on the Gulf of Denard, and it has a breakwater that is a piece of First Age artifice. And there's a temple built in it called the Singing Tides Temple. And the way that the tides kind of flow in and around the breakwater produces music. And they kind of use it to It doesn't say how they use it to produce music. It may swing chimes of some sort. It may flow through pipes that then expel notes as the air comes out. However your imagination takes you. This is something that the monks there use to meditate. And they apparently use the tides to tell the time. I'm not sure how that works. I I can see that. If you're assuming that the tides are regular, which... Uh, it's an argument as to whether the influence of the pole of Earth would make the tides more regular. It does seem to make everything else more regular and stable. But if they're more regular, then you've got a sort of six, eight, however many hours interval between every time that it goes off when it 
comes in and when it goes out, if you assume that whatever mechanism they've got going here makes a different tone on the in-swing to the out-swing, at which point it's not a clock that's accurate to the second, but it's a case of if you're an immaculate monk and it's like, yes, you're going to spend eight hours meditating, then go do your duties, sit down on the ding, and then you go out on the dong. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a nice timing. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, timer, I can see. That absolutely works. The thing that's confusing me is that on Earth, solar and lunar calendars do not match up. And so you will wind up with tides sliding at whatever time of the day. So if you're yes. trying to use that sort of a model to do it, then I'm not sure that it works. It may not be an exceptionally accurate one. I'm pretty sure we do have tidal timepieces. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether we have uh, phases of the moon of creation, so to speak. Do we know what creation's lunar cycle is? Uh, loosely, from... I, again, angry letters at me if third changed this, but it pretty much lines up... You know how the months are wonky sizes? The months in creation are regular. They have 25 yeah. days apiece. Um, and there's three months to a season, and there's five and a bit seasons, whatever you want to call calibration. In each of those months, we get weirdly... I can't say equal, because we don't have the exact waxing, waning, gibbous thing, but we have a no moon phases, changing moon phases, full moon phases, because that's relevant to lunars. And there is equal timing of the three in each month. Okay, so yes, in that case, you could use it. So long as it's equally spaced within the 24-hour periods... Yeah. The advantage that creation has to make this work, actually, is the existence of calibration. Because it all resets to flat after calibration, not just in terms of timekeeping, but in terms of cosmology as well. So it actually won't slide out. Yeah, no, that works. Because that's how lunar calendars tended to work in this world anyway, that they would have some non-calendar days to reset the calendar to make the lunar and solar calendars line up. So I can see that if provi provided it is something that happens on a regular 24-hour cycle for the tides, then that would absolutely work, because otherwise your macro-lunar stuff would throw it off. But anyway, enough aside on that. That's only one example of the various First Age bits of artifice that, uh, that are in Mion. We are talking like it's insane. Tide clocks are actually a real thing. Okay. Yeah. I have just looked at that. Tide clocks are a real thing, and they do work pretty much fine like apparently the cycle is it's different because earth is round but creation isn't which makes it even easier for this to work properly but it takes about 24 hours and 50 minutes for a tidal clock to read a day but that on creation it will line up perfectly because it's not a ball mm. yep that's fair enough that musical clock is not the only piece of first age artifice there is there is all sorts of First Age bits in the city. Not a lot of it is very well defined. You have them doing random things, like there'll be a tower somewhere that um, when you look out of the window at night, it will show different stars to what it would show if you were down on the street and stuff like that. Just weird, funky little pieces of First Age wonder that are kind of scattered throughout the city. And there is a group of patricians called the Unrung Bell who are basically trying to find out all they can about this stuff and getting all of the mysteries codified and sorted out and catalogued. An antiquarian society. Yeah, antiquarian society crossed with the Masons or some sort of hermetic order 
because if they are collecting all of this knowledge, there's no way that they're not using it in some way to advance their own agendas. I can absolutely see that. Depends on how useful it is, because some of it can just be stuff like the tower that lets you see different stars, depending on how that works. That could literally just be a telescope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's unclear quite how much that would actually help anyone, um, I suppose. But it's still something that is basically there to collect secrets, give them out as they see fit, and try and work it all out. It is said that some of their findings do directly contradict immaculate teachings, and so they're aware that they're living on borrowed time, so to speak, but it's basically too juicy a piece of low-hanging fruit to ignore, just because there's so much weird stuff there. And that's basically your invitation to do a bunch of paranormal mystery stuff in the place. On the more mundane side, it is a port and sends out ships to the south and the west. I imagine that from where it's going, um, from that point in the west, you would probably hit the Wavecrest Archipelago fairly swiftly without having any of the intermediate points of Wujian and that side of things. There is a port city that they hold that is declining in relevance because of um, Wujian, but whether they actually service it from there, I would imagine that that's one of the yeah. regular stops from the Kathak fleets yeah. from there. And arguably, it can keep retaining some relevance for as long as Wujian is, well, delicately put, a mess. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Wujian it, it's useful, but it's not easy to work with. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I'm going to love getting into Wujian because it's it's one of my favourite places yeah. in the setting, and it is a big hot mess. It's soggy Gotham City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could totally see that. Now you say it. <laughs> anyway, um, we've got yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got a legion stationed in Mion. The Ash and Ember Legion it is supposedly there to fight bandits, but it is also very much there to basically retake the city in the event of it being taken in a realm civil war. The amount of control that Mion has over the surrounding wetlands means that you hold the city, you can basically use it to poison the wetlands and dry up a good chunk of the breadbasket so they can yeah. essentially, as a kind of a final farewell so to speak, use those mechanisms within Mion to, or within, sorry, within the 15 Leagues Redoubt, which is 45 miles from the city centre, as kind of a final farewell to make sure that any siege will not be able to be supplied by Mion's fertile soil because it won't be fertile for very long. And we should probably talk yeah. about the 15 Leagues Redoubt at this point. Uh, now that we've mentioned the thing, um, it is a manse. The hearthstone that is within it controls the region's fertility. It's some way out. It's called the Prime Redoubt of House Kathak. I've been accused of having swallowed a dictionary a few times in my life. That's not a word that I've actually come across a whole heap. Um, so, but it's basically uh, a redoubt place. Redoubt or? Yes. I was going to say, because the Redoubts, that's a military fortress in a difficult location. Pretty much. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, in which case, it's their focus within the prefecture in that case. There is sorcery propping up its walls and its moat. Some of the politics around this are interesting, but for optics' sake, the Ash and Ember Legion are stationed there 
to protect the manse and to fight bandits, but they are absolutely under full orders to sabotage it in the event that Mion is taken because it'll then be easier to take back. That is about it for their main big prefecture. You can already see some of the themes that are in there for the kind of the ongoing, my thought of future clash for the house, which is that as Canaan becomes more immaculate, Mion prefecture is going to become harder and harder to govern because of how much they're willing to tolerate cults of Heshia Shankonkud popping up everywhere. Yeah. Mm. The next one then on the list, now that we get out of their prefecture, we get to the city of Mavignos that is half-held by House Kathak. It's a city up in Pangu prefecture, which is all the way on the other side of the aisle from, well, from Mion anyway, almost exactly opposite from Mion prefecture. Pangu is way up in the northeast, and Mavignos is a city up in that prefecture that they half-hold in joint dominion with House Sinus. I bet that goes well. That's not a, a thing that you want to ever be doing. Although, in addition to the fact that the city is half-held by Kathak and half-held by Sinus, it's governed by Assessus. This city is not a nice place to be. <laughs> no, it really won't be. It's governed by one Sessus Gilland, who bends the organised crime there to her bidding, like every Sessus would. Yes, absolutely as you would. And, of course, the Kathak will hate that. And the Sinus will love it. Yeah, it's just... Oh, it, it just... Uh, this is one of the points where the realm's governance of... Here, you can administer this place. Here, you can administer this portion of the place. And here, you can have all of the money from the place. That kind of scheme just breaks down entirely. Well, without the Empress. When the Empress was around, this was probably a very clever way to make sure that the city doesn't become someone's pawn. But now that she's gone, it just makes the city dreadful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you mentioned Batman earlier. We have someone who is possibly being that <laughs> in Mavignos. We don't know a whole heap else about it, but there is a thief called the Magpie who is operating in there, and they're not targeting anyone apart from the governor's family. So, of course, Cessus Gilland is getting a bit suspicious about this whole thing, and they basically <laughs> it's, accuse... It's the Kathak governor. <laughs> I can't see any logical way in the way that Kathaks tend to work that that's the case. But Gilend is apparently convinced that Kathak is behind the magpie in some way. Personally, and let's put our tinfoil hats on here, kids, for if you want to set a game there. I think it's the Sinus governing family, but they're acting to make it look like it's the Kathak one. Because whilst this isn't a very Kathak move, it is a very Sinus move. <laughs> Yeah, I can totally see that one. Unless, of course, the accusation is purely a ploy from Gilland, who knows exactly that it's the kind of thing that a Sinist would do, but wants to insult the Kathaks and provoke war with the Kathaks because they want the Kathaks out. They're happy with Sinus being where they are, but Kathak yeah. being there is a problem. Well, yeah, when you're assessor's governor running a city with all of the mob and all the organised crime, all how Sinus are going to ask for is a cut. Yeah, whereas the Kathak is just going to cause problems. And there's suggestions that you're going to get an open vendetta declared over all of the slander that's going on because the Kathak family there just are not taking that, um, which is fair enough, I suppose. Yeah. 
This is why the realm can be very, very fun. As an adversarial force, sure, it's great. Once you actually get into it and realise how much of a mess it is, hopefully that this series will convince you to run a game on the aisle for just all of the shenanigans that go on there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, next up we have the City of Glass, which is a city near Ession, Ession, Essen. I don't know if they're trying to be Korean or not. Forest, which is apparently the birthplace of Sextus Gilus down in Lord's Crossing. It's in the middle. It's near the Imperial Mountain. It's that sort of neck of the woods. And the City of Glass is governed by an old Kathak, one Kathak Nerin, who, if you ever watch, and this is, this is going to be racking up the points for the obscure references, if you ever watch the old 90s Dungeons & Dragons cartoon, <laughs> Kathak Nerin, the city governor here, is basically the dungeon master from that. Maybe. He's a little old man that plays host to all the adventurers that are going questing for various things and creatures in the forest. And I imagine him sitting in his little chair going, Ah, welcome adventurers. If you need a quest, I can provide. Holds up a little, <laughs> little piece of paper. I see that more as a case of, he's now old beyond the point where he can do it himself. And... The idea of playing host to it is kind of now he's inviting people in who can tell him stories that will reinvigorate memories of Aww. the glory days, that sort of thing. Aww. That's how I read that, kind of t telling telling fireside tales. Yeah, that works too. Either way, as both of us are saying, absolute sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. This is a, a lovely old deer running a lovely old little city that's got a magical forest next to it that you can go adventuring in. This is a nice place to start your game. It's also a fairly dangerous place to do your trade as well. Glass is a place where if you are going into Essian Forest to find things to do, like get fur and hides or wood, then you're probably going to take your life into your hands. So another part for anything that's military there and get a Kathak presence would be that you basically spend your time guarding the people who are gathering goods. I imagine it means that the stuff that gets produced there is not competitive in the least, but because you need to pay for all those mercenaries. But it also means you're going to possibly get some weird and wonderful stuff going on. And we will get to Essien Forest when we cover the Lord's Crossing Dominion at uh, a later date. It's just worth talking about in passing here as it's a Kathak holding. And the last, last place on the Isle that has any Kathak involvement that we know of is the Endless Prefecture. It is technically held by House Namon, but Kathak has a fair amount of sway there. It's the prefecture that's closest to the Imperial Mountain. It rises right up against the slopes and has the lowest level of population of anyone there. It's pretty much only populated by people on Immaculate Monasteries that go up the uh, foothill of the Imperial Mountain. The Grand Master of the Immaculates in the area is one Kathak Vitara, and he controls the monks who live on the spine of the Amaranthine Dragon, which is a path up the Imperial Mountain, and the monasteries are spaced at the end of every day's journey as you kind of go up the mountains. So this is a well-practiced route for pilgrims and that sort of thing. So I can see a fair amount of immaculate politicking going on there. And yeah. it probably sticks in Namon's craw a fair bit because she's <laughs> pious, but she doesn't control one of the most holy sites on the Blessed Isle. Yeah. In the case of the holdings reflecting the house again, 
we just kind of do have the endless prefecture being again the case of a Kanan's weird turn to piety, but more also the very very tactical, very very strategic, but also almost completely blameless maneuvering that the house manages to pull off. <laughs> yes. Because you can't have a go at them for this. This is just a Grandmaster of the Immaculates. But it's not yours. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. And the whole place, it's mostly wilderness and ruins, but it's also ruins of the realm before. So this is another place on the Blessed Isle that you can go to dig up first age stuff, should you so wish. Yeah. Now that we've talked about all of the nice, peaceful holdings on the aisle, we get on to House Cathax Satrapies, and I don't know how to put this other than in the most blunt way possible. All of House Cathax Satrapies are trouble. <laughs> yes, absolutely. House Cathax has the difficult ones, notably <laughs> because at the top of our list is, as I take off my tinfoil hat from the call and put on instead a military helmet... They've got Harbourhead, which I'm going to get some angry letters, but I'm honestly going to call the most likely to blow up powder keg that the realm currently holds. Yes. We won't go into a huge amount of detail for these satrapies here because we're focusing on the Blessed Isle, but we'll just talk through an outline for each. Harbourhead is a, in the south, that is, it's a source of military troops for Kathak, which is probably also a way to control it. You drain off all of all of the young, violent people that are down there so they can't rebel against you. So that's one way of dealing with it. But it also has one of the most belligerent and bellicose gods in creation down there. Yeah. It has Alat, the southern god of war and cattle, who has his primary shrine down there. He's a big, angry cow man, and he hates everyone. <laughs> Pretty much. He's basically a godly minotaur in most of his presentations. There are stats for him in the core book. And it's painful to see what kind of things he can put out. Not to mention that he has a cult of fervent worshippers who are basically trained to be assassins. Yeah, the brides of Alat are cool and we will get to them in the Harbourhead episode. The problem with Harbourhead, and remember these words, listeners, because you might hear them a lot as we start going through all of the Cathax satrapies. There's a lot of religious tension that may soon boil over into violent conflict. Yes. I mean, that's already been the case from the prefectures, but it's kind of underscored with, I don't know, some kind of blunt object in the satrapies. And yeah, you need to keep Alat happy, basically. <laughs> Otherwise, he will rage and kill everyone. So as a result, House Kathak is a place that's known for its generals. They don't send those to Harbourhead. They send the people who are likely to be the calm negotiators and getting everything lined up and so on. It's people who are designed to be administrators first and aren't likely to really annoy the god. <laughs> so, yeah, this is one of the cases where Kathak is doing things against its nature because it needs to. Yeah. Then we go on to the next of their satrapies, which is the Lap, which is off in the corner of the south. All the Kathak satrapies we have names for are in the south. Again, every house has more satrapies than are named. Yes, but the Lap is in kind of the bowl of the Inland Sea in the south of it. And it's not entirely a Kathak satrapy, which is kind of the trick again. <laughs> 
Yeah, you will recall, dear listener, how we mentioned that Mavignos was a bit of a tricky situation because it was held by Kathak, who want to be moral and good, and then Cessus and Sinus, who want to be evil and have all the money in the world. So the lap is controlled by House Kathak, and then also houses Peleps and Ragara. <laughs> in this case, at least, not to be too mean to House Ragara, no, absolutely to be too mean to House Ragara. At least in this case, there's two ones that are mostly decent. And then House Ragara, who want to be evil and have all of the money in the world. Yeah, I mean, you could see them as kind of wanting to hold House Ragara in check, but that is absolutely not what the current Kathak co-satrap is trying to do. Kathak Sijip is planning on eliminating the other two and just declaring herself prince of the place once the others are all eliminated. So... Kathak ambition. Yeah, we have Kathak ambition and we have Kathak skullduggery. I mean, assassins, core. This is evidence, frankly, of, like I sort of said in the Civil War section, that if you knock Kanan off the throne, House Kathak can become very dangerous very quickly. It's just the fact that Kanan is very, very chill. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, um, and honestly, all power to her. Another Ragara that ends up with a knife in its back is a good thing. <laughs> yep, that's fair enough. Then we have Fajad, which is conquered by the Realm of Ralgo, all of the other fun things. It's... I think the best analogy is Roman client kingdoms for how this is run. Mm-hmm. It's got its own prince and its own council and its own big religious thing, according to the Abari creed and the Abari faith. And you'll be surprised to learn, listeners, that... Um, there's a lot of religious tension that may soon boil over into violent conflict. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, historically, the House Kathak has managed it by basically letting the Abari creed run however they see fit. So long as they play the tribute, they don't really care. You've got a satrap who's running it, Kathak May, who is, or May, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, M-E-I, is firstly not a diplomat. They are an ex-dragon lord. <laughs> start off with and they don't like the abari and is basically committing what's basically heresy economic heresy that is in a situation where the house is pretty cash strapped to considering relaxing the realm tribute and then letting the immaculate order in in full force to go in and suppress the abari there is unfortunately the problem of the garrison commander one Nemon Suresh, who spends all their time just sat in the Grand Mosque of the Abari Creed, the Abari faith has mosques, discussing their religion and faith and by and large kind of just making it look like the realm is okay with them, which may just be another case of House Nemon getting in the way. And it's also, Fajard is, uh, not to be excessively rude, but... Fajad is a bit of a liability because Peleps has just cut it off from all of the roots and Wujen has taken most of the trade from it. So now it's a religiously divergent satrapy that you can't even make that much money off of. Yeah, so you may as well kick it to the curb in order to get as much as you can from it while it's there. But the garrison commander is not likely to acquiesce to your demands if they are liking the idea of the Apari Creed, which is very weird. I mean, you'd almost have to get the Immaculates to smack the Garrison Commander down before you did anything. That's how I would see that playing out. And the issue with that is getting the Immaculates to smack down a Nemon is difficult. 
because they don't want to upset Mummy Dearest. They've also got a sorcerer problem, but this will be covered more in the Fajard episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fajard is a lovely, lovely mess, as are many places, but... Yeah, you can see the themes kind of tracing right the way through all of the Kathak satrapies that are talked about so far. But they're one of the biggest military houses, so violent conflict will be very big and grand and sweeping. And so that's the kind of things that you can play with with House Kathak. I think also thematically it's quite interesting because religious conflicts, as much as they get violent... Military solutions are not always the best idea, and so sending an, a military house in to deal with any religious conflicts, they need to sort of play outside their comfort zone. I mean, it's a case of if you're a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail sort of thing. Yeah, although equally, even sending the religious houses doesn't work. Because again, we've got the case of in Fajad that Nemon, Nemon is turning to the local colour, and Nemon are supposed to be the fervent ones. Yes. <laughs> But it's kind of encouraging you to think outside the box in regards to Kathak characters and games that you need to start thinking, well, yes, this is a military house. Military does not mean one unified front just directing troops and whatever else. Military will always have non-military problems. And those are the ones that are sort of bubbling to the surface to try and undermine House Kathak's otherwise very secure position. Yeah. Basically, if you pull House Kathak into a fight with swords, you've already lost. Pretty much. And so all of these are designed to have fights that don't necessarily need to involve swords, and it's probably a bad idea if they do. Yeah. But, yeah, and with that, we're now starting to talk into how to design them into games. We should probably drop this episode and get to the Storyhook side. If you've just been along for the lore, we do hope that you've enjoyed it. Thank you ever so much for coming along for the ride with us. Next time, we will be opening up the Atlas on how Sinus their characteristics and all of their holdings and all of the fingers that they will have in various pies and that is the metaphor <laughs> they have spidery fingers in many many webby pies we've covered a good guy house now we cover the first of the evil ones yeah until then if you've liked what you're listening to please do drop us a review wherever you're listening and if you have any kind of comments any feedback or even just to point out what we've missed or any other questions, any areas you want us to look into, do email us at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. And until then, thank you ever so much for cracking open the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramithius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple, and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age, and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission. That was you. perhaps the worst one we've done. I think we should do this again. Yeah. I, th I think yeah. we should do this. I think we should do this again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's okay. start that one yeah. again because that was just a janked intro. <laughs> Absolutely, it was. <laughs> <All right>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Can't right, tell we haven't in. done this in a while. Yeah. Just before we get started on today's issue, uh, today's issue. Oh my god. We haven't done this in a while. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> Now onto the onto yeah. their sa- onto their <clears throat> their house constituents, the people within it. As I almost jumped a whole page yes. down. <laughs> we get to the city of Mavignos. Mavignos, Mavignos. It's I've lost Pangu Prefecture on the map. I'll try and find it. I was pretty sure it was in the top top right hand corner. It is in the top right hand corner. Then we go on to the next of their satrapies, which is the Lap, which is whoop, not on this map of the Isle. I don't know why I was looking there. It's um, <laughs> no, the Lap is an island. Island? No, it's the one on the corner, no. isn't it? It's yes. the one on the corner. I'm getting confused. The Lap, the Lap is off in the corner, in the corner of the south. Yes, that there's religious tension that may boil over into violent conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we we need that. We some someone needs to sample that. I'm sorry. That's that's the but, that's the yeah, that's um, the byline for House Kathak. 